As you know, in the mornings, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In the evenings, after our 5 o'clock prayer, we have another worship service at 6 p.m. And in that service, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel and the Psalms, which is turning into a wonderful blessing as well. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's the end of a lengthy letter that Paul has written, Pastor Timothy, to the church in Ephesus. He kind of makes a thesis statement in 1 Timothy 3.14, where he says that he's writing these things so that we might know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So all the relationships in the church are important to Paul. He addresses them, but he specifically addresses the, the understanding that Truth is to be preserved, protected, and taught in the household of God. And those who are preaching false doctrine should be actively opposed. This is his message in a nutshell to Timothy. So now we come to a time at the end of the letter where he's kind of summarizing. He's making some overall summary thoughts, which I found extremely helpful, and some, some helpful uh, kind of imperatives of behavior. For Timothy and the church as well. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for you for this morning. Beginning with the middle of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, and slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the spirit, or the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as children, as sheep. We hear the voice of our good shepherd. Yet we need to understand with our hearts, and this is only possible by a work of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, do your work inside us. Illuminate our hearts. Help us to understand these words. Conform us to your will. Convict and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Contentment in Christ the title of the sermon. We see through sound doctrine that we can have contentment in Christ because doctrine that's right and true pushes our hearts to Jesus. 
Often we think doctrine is a, a word that doesn't relate to us. It's a scary word, maybe. It's a word for pastors and theologians, but not for me. Well, that's not true. Doctrine is a word for each one of you who profess Christ. We'll discuss why it's so important to your own personal contentment. If you remember, Paul started the letter to Timothy with a charge to correct the false teachers. The church was disrupted by these false teachers, and he sought to correct them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the very first few verses, he says I, that you should charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. It says people have swerved from these and wandered into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without any understanding of the things they are saying or the things that are proposed by the gospel. So he's coming back to that same message here at the end. He started there, correct the false teaching, preserve true doctrine, and he ends there as well. Seems to be a theme of not only First Timothy, but also Second Timothy and Titus, all the pastoral epistles as they're called. So the one thing a pastor needs to know is what the true doctrine is and how to preserve it, how to teach it, how to hold on to it. And for all of us in a church, we need to understand the doctrine of the Scriptures. He tells Timothy as well that this is going to be warfare. This is not going to be an easy thing. Not warfare against people per se, but a spiritual war says in verse 18 of chapter 1, I entrust you, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. This is life and death, Timothy. If you let go of sound doctrine, death, destruction, shipwreck of faith, is the result. So what are some of the specifics? I'm just going to go through chapters 2 through 5 quickly in summary, and so you have the context of the words that he brings today. Here's some of the things he told Timothy that the church should focus on. It says, pray for all people, even for pagan rulers. Pray for them. It says, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. He said, men should pray without anger or quarreling, should strive for peace in your worship. Women should act and dress modestly and not have authority or teach, have authority over men or teach men. He says, elders should be above reproach and able to teach. They should manage their own households well. Deacons also should be of good character, above reproach, and manage their households well. He says the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. But he says false teachers and demons will attack this truth. So pastors and elders should command and teach the truth. They should set the believers an example in their speech and love and faith and purity. They should immerse themselves in sound teaching and doctrine. And they should view the people in the church as a family. The older men are fathers. The older women are mothers. The younger men are 
sons, and the younger women are daughters. And we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. He says that widows should be well cared for. That elders should be carefully chosen and honored and protected and held accountable. The slaves should honor believing and pagan masters as unto the Lord. And now at the very end of this majestic and, and wonderful letter, Paul closes by exhorting Pastor Timothy to do his duty, to teach and to insist on everything, all these things that he's mentioned. Teach and urge these things, Paul says. Why? That's because if you're going to be content, you need to know the truth, and you need to have it in your life. Paul sees the church as a place where God is glorified. The primary reason we're here is to glorify God. If you came for some other reason, you need to redirect your heart to Jesus, to glorify our mighty God. And I know we have needs, and we do come to meet God. We want our needs to be met. But that's not the primary purpose for our being here. See, it's in the glorifying of God that His Spirit actually comforts your soul. We seek to glorify God the way He's revealed to us in His Word. The pastors and the elders are to positively pursue this goal and to protect right worship and doctrine. How? How do they do this? He says in chapter 4 of this same book, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in their speech, conduct, love, and purity, and faith. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or on your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see the consistent theme of the messages. Devote yourself to teaching, to understanding and teaching and presenting truth, right doctrine. And it's not just my job, it's all of you that you'd be pursuing this. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, the Lord gave you shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The work of the shepherds and the teachers, the elders, is to equip you for ministry. People sometimes ask me, well, do you guys do outreach to the local community? And I say, yeah. I send out a whole church filled with right doctrine and a love for Jesus. All over, like tentacles into this community. Of course, we want to do more and more, but at its foundational level, that is our outreach. You, each one of you, shining your light for Christ. Doctrine also has a a steadying effect in life. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, so that you will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting and craftiness. Rather, this is what you do when you go out, you speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Okay, very quickly, what is doctrine? Again, it's a word that sometimes is intimidating or even rejected outright by our culture. Doctrine is just what the Bible teaches on any given subject, on anything. There's a doctrine for everything. The Word of God touches every little corner, nook and cranny of your life. 
electronics and social media. Is there a doctrine of this in the Bible? I would say yes. Talk to me later. Is there a doctrine of sex or of government or sports or alcohol or homosexuality or transgenderism? Yes, to all of it. Right doctrine is something that must be taught and guarded and understood. And certainly there are more important doctrines than lesser important doctrines. I like to view doctrine as a sword. The closer you get to the tip of the sword, the more important the doctrine is. But there's also important doctrines down at the hilt, but that actually won't kill you if you get them wrong, right? The closer we get to the tip of the sword, we're talking about things that we find in our Apostles' Creed or in our confessions, the gospel. The vows that you heard Brandon take, that's the very tip of the sword. You have to believe all of that to call yourself a Christian. Notice also in these opening verses that Paul mentions that those who stray from the things that he has urged and charges Timothy to teach are also not in accordance with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how Paul equates his own teaching? with the words of Christ. It's powerful. Of course, it's true. It reminded me, there was a comment on our church, Insta, uh, not Insta, I don't even know what our thing is called. Facebook, sorry. I'm not on it often. Uh, someone left a comment and said, it was a, a, about one of the sermons that was posted there. And he said, this is just the words of Paul. It's not the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus trump the words of Paul. So the words of Paul are lesser importance, and certainly we don't put much value on them compared to the words of Christ. What's the problem? He doesn't know his doctrine. He doesn't know the doctrine of the inspired word of God, that all scriptures God breathed. You see, it's very practical. Knowing your doctrine helps you just understand life, understand the word of God as well. The word sound doctrine, sound in, literally in the Greek is healthy. I love that, healthy doctrine. Because think about it, if you don't have sound doctrine, you are unhealthy spiritually. You're going to be sick spiritually. The doctrine of the scriptures keep you healthy in your soul. That's why Paul emphasizes it so, so often and so emphatically. It's the pastor's job. It's the elder's job. Why? Because we have an enemy and Satan twists the scripture. From the Garden of Eden to the temptation of Jesus, what did he do? He twisted God's word, didn't he? He took it and he twisted it and he put it back. He didn't deny it. He just twisted it and he gave it back. It would be much easier if he just said, that's not true. What God says is wrong. That's not the way Satan works. That's why it's so important that we all understand and know the doctrine that accords with the gospel. Again, it's all through Titus. It's all through Timothy. Titus chapter 2, But as for you, teach what accords sound doctrine. Titus 1, The elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught that he may give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's important.
Paul mentions, again, Jesus teaching. The most sound teacher, pastor, rabbi to ever live. And yet Paul is, is equating his own inspired letter and his own teaching with that of Christ's. And rightly so. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus emphasized the teaching, the doctrine, just as well. He says, teach them to obey everything I command you. This is part of our charge as Christians, the Great Commission. He says, the Holy Spirit, in John 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I taught you. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing for you right now. If he lives in you, he's reminding you of what Jesus said. Not just the red letters, all the Bible is God's word. So there's a binding agent among those who would teach the word of God in Christ in every denomination, true Christians. There's a binding agent, and that's the Holy Spirit. And that's a capital A agent as well. The Holy Spirit, who in every age brings continuity to the taught word of Christ. Does that mean we agree on everything? No, because we're fallen men. And sometimes we disagree about non-essentials. But about the essentials, there's binding. There's truth that will be consistent throughout the ages. And that's exactly what we see. That's the doctrine we must always insist on. We must be consistent in teaching. Well, what if someone teaches something wrongly? Jesus would call, call out false teachers directly. Paul does the same thing. And he calls out their false doctrine. Remember Jesus talking about the Pharisees and teachers of the law. says, Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's, people's shoulders. It's a false doctrine, and he's, he's calling it out for what it is. He says that they're wrong to insist that anyone who swears by the temple is nothing, but if they swear by the gold of the temple, he's bound by the oath. Again, he's calling out a specific doctrine. He says that's wrong. It's just not right. You remember he told the Sadducees in Matthew 22, you are wrong. Your doctrine is wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God when they were trying to confound him or trap him in some way. So that's the context for Paul. And he writes in such a way that these people who teach false doctrine are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Imagine if you are that teacher and you hear Paul or you read this letter that's being read aloud in front of the church and you know that he's talking about you and he just said that you promote myths and endless genealogies. You've devoted yourself to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods in 1 Timothy 4 that God has created and that it's irreverent and it's a silly myth. He's calling out your doctrine and he's commanding Timothy to avoid such irreverent babble. It's not knowledge. So sound doctrine, this is the end of the first point, sound doctrine must be maintained in the church. It's of critical importance to all of our health. And in so much as we are in error, in so, that is the degree to which we will be unhealthy as Christians. It's practical as well. You understanding what the scriptures teach is good for your soul. It encourages your soul. 
and we don't respond to significant error with just, well, give them the benefit of the doubt. You need to speak the truth in love as God gives the opportunity. So sound doctrine, pursue it. Where do you best find it? It's in the scriptures, of course. And the best summary of doctrine that probably has ever been written is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a summary of doctrine, central, important doctrine. And it's also outlined in your larger and shorter catechisms. The doctrine of the scripture is critical. Second point. Unsound doctrine produces exactly the opposite. So you're content with sound doctrine. If your doctrine isn't sound, you're going to have discontentment and really destructive life. In verse 4, he says as much. Unsound doctrine, those who teach it, are puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. With an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. And the result is this, envy and dissension. It's everything opposite of contentment. Dissension and slander and evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in their minds and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul calls out their false lives as well as their false doctrine. Jesus did the same thing. Beware of false prophets, he said in chapter 7. They're coming to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He told the Pharisees that they're outwardly beautiful, but inside they're wicked, like dead man's tombs. And there are many in our, in the Orthodox Church, I would say, the church that holds up God's Scripture above our own culture, who are doing that right now, publicly, calling out false teachers. Paul says, if anyone preaches a different doctrine, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Bad doctrine is going to produce a sinful life, a destructive life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he expounds on that. He says that these people are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to their parents. It's four or five more lines of the, the various outworkings of an, a misunderstanding of God and his gospel. He says in verse 7 of chapter 3, They're always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Matthew 23, Jesus says these people are hypocrites. They're blind guides. They're fools and blind men and whitewashed tombs. Sons and murderers, sons of the murderers of the prophets, and serpents, and a brood of vipers. These are people who are unrepentant, they're prideful, they're teaching false doctrine, and Jesus just calls them what they are. They're sons of Satan. And Paul follows along. Again, in verse 4, he says that the teacher of false doctrine is puffed up with conceit. He's prideful, and he actually understands nothing. He says in verse 20 that they've swerved from the faith. They've wandered into vain discussions. They've shipwrecked their faith. He says in verse 19 of chapter 1. So bad doctrine, is it responsible for all of that that we mentioned? 
Not exactly, but it goes together with doctrine. A bad doctrine and a bad life are like two sides of the same coin. You don't understand how to live because you don't understand your God. And that's why, like, when people talk about the frozen chosen, oh, you Calvinists, you reform folks, you're just, you're so dead. It's actually not possible. It's impossible to be a frozen chosen one, someone who understands God's sovereignty, who knows that God has lifted you up out of the pit and given you life. It's impossible to be frozen, to be dead. It can't be academic. If it's just academic, then you're not really a Calvinist. You're not really a Christian. And Calvinism is just biblical Christianity is all it is. The most important doctrine, the doctrine that changes everything, is gospel-focused. It's about Jesus. And the result is what the third point is all about. It's contentment. True contentment. It comes from understanding who you are and who God is. And it comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's focused and it's all about Christ. In verse 6 he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. They go together. Think of all the struggles in the modern Christian life. Contentment is probably the hardest one that we deal with every day on a daily basis. How often are you easily shoved in life with a little bit of a storm or a small wave or a big, big valley of darkness? Whatever it is that comes upon you and immediately you're discontent. Immediately, you feel it, that something is, is wrong and you have to fix it quickly. And of course, our culture is a culture that lives in discontentment. Nobody's ever supposed to be content. The American dream is always out there. It's always just beyond reach. You have to reach harder and harder to find it. It's a consumeristic culture that tells you that You will never be happy until you get this new thing. You're never going to be content until you do this thing, until you listen to this or watch this thing. It's always pushing and pushing. Even the devices you use have algorithms. Did you know that? That measure your interest in things, what you search for, what you look at, even what you say. And then it markets something to you. This happened to me probably a half a dozen times. Hey, Mary Kay, I think we might want to think about getting a new mattress. And then within 30 seconds, an ad for a new mattress pops up on my phone. Has that ever happened to you? Like that is, that verges on wickedness. Like they're using your words to market things that you probably don't need to you. They're saying you will not be content. You can never be happy until you get these things. And what's the purpose of marketing? If you've had economics, you know it's not only to meet demand. Marketing actually creates demand. That's their goal, to convince you that you need something that you don't. That's why billboards are outlawed in some countries, because it's just preying on your flesh. I don't know how many times I've been driving up the Asheville Highway and seen that little sign that has a McDonald's hamburger on it. 
and then pulled over and gotten one. I didn't know I needed one. I probably didn't. I absolutely didn't. But it looked so good, and I thought I did. Paul tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. You need to be content with what you have. That's what he's, he's driving at. When you're constantly stepping into the world's version of what's going to make you happy, you're never going to be content. The world is at war for your soul, and you can't accept the wisdom of the marketing and consumeristic culture at face value. You just cannot do that. You'll never be content. When it comes to things and possessions and activities, the root of discontentment, of course, is coveting. It's the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. The Shorter Catechism, question 80, says the Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition. That's what it means not to covet. You're content with where God has placed you. And it forbids all discontentment with our own estate. But you see, in our culture, breaking the Tenth Commandment is not only accepted, it's almost pushed on us. It's encouraged. There's a long time ago where Mary Kay just started throwing away those magazines you get in the mail that show beautiful homes or beautiful clothing or beautiful whatever. Now she just kind of tosses most of them. Because it was producing an unhealthy desire for things that she really doesn't need. To lust after worldly goods in this way is only going to make you more discontent. So trash it. Trash that kind of stuff. Stop throwing things away. If you can fix it, try to fix it. You don't need something new. It's like a, a paradigm shift is required for us. We're, we're in a fishbowl, a marketing fishbowl, a consumeristic fishbowl, and we just swim around in this water and we don't even realize it. It's a new thing in the past 200 years or so. It's a new thing, and the first step to change that paradigm is just to recognize that you are in that fishbowl, number one, and then to get out. It's like the, the marketing culture is a ballroom that tells you you're not content, you're not content, and they're, the world's just dancing around in circles. The only way to get out of that is to step out of the dance floor, step off of the dance, get out of the ballroom completely, and breathe the free air again. It's the open air of contentment that comes in Jesus Christ. And you also have much less anxiety about life in this way. Philippians 4, Paul mentions this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's kind of an outworking of your inward reliance on Christ, your contentment. It produces joy, even in difficult circumstances. I say again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the result of taking that anxiety and flipping it into prayer? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 4, Philippians, I've learned to be content in every situation. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
So you can see why Paul in verse 7 of chapter 6 in Timothy says, We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we can be content. The other day, Emmy lost her, there was a watch I bought her years ago and she lost it. We found it and we were so excited and we were like, you found the watch. And we were rejoicing, the lost watch had been found. She said, Daddy, I hope I get to take this watch to heaven. Then she went, that's sacrilegious, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, you don't get to take anything to heaven. You just get to go and be with Jesus. So when he says we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Paul's not implying that we have to give give away all of our worldly goods to be content. That's not his point at all. So that all you have left is food and clothing. Okay, now I can be content. Some of the most godly men in Scripture are wealthy. So it's not like an indictment of wealth. But remember, he's also condemning those who would pursue money. So there's a, there's a dichotomy. If you're pursuing money, yeah, your wealth is probably ill-gained. But there are rich men in the world who are not content, and there are very poor people who are not content. Contentment has nothing to do with wealth. <coughs> Certainly not to give to the poor is sinful, and we should be giving. We should care about the needs of those who are less fortunate than we are, or for whatever reason, don't have the wealth that we enjoy. But generosity is something that springs from a heart of gratitude to God. And Paul leans on the teaching of Jesus when he talks about wealth. Remember Jesus in Matthew 6 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says in verse 24 of chapter 6 of Matthew, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul says the same thing. You can't serve money and God. You can't do both. Be content with what God has given you. Stop coveting more. You can only serve one master. And if it's not Jesus whom you serve, it's something else. There's a zero tolerance here. It's not like there's some compatibility. Well, I'll, I'll pursue my quest for millionairehood and Jesus at the same time. No, it doesn't work like that, actually. Every day, you need to give everything to God in your heart. Don't hold to anything tightly. Your possessions, your family, your health, you give it to God every day. Mary Kay and I do that. God's given us a beautiful property. We give it to God every day. God, if you want to take it, take it. Burn it down. Destroy it. Confiscate it. Move me somewhere else. This is yours. While I have it, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to do it to your glory. But I don't want to hold on to it in my heart. Why? Because it produces anxiety. It's not mine anyway. It's God's. And this is why Jesus could say, don't be anxious about anything. Anxiety helps no situation in life. Have you been anxious this week? I was tempted to anxiety a number of times. Did it help anything? Jesus said you can't make yourself any taller. You can't lengthen your life at all. You certainly can't make yourself healthier by being anxious. 
There's nothing that changes positively because of anxiety. So what do you do? You fix your eyes on Jesus and the hope set before you. You pray for things that are outside of your control, which is most things in life. You pray. You recognize the power of the only one who has control. And you give your anxiety to him. And really, anxiety, the root of anxiety is pride. It's shocking, isn't it? It is. It's pride. You say, no, I want this. I can fix this. And I will not give it away. I'm going to hold on tight. It's very self-centered. What's the result if you've ever given in to anxiety, as I have before? The result is weariness and despair and discouragement and destruction and discontentment. However, when you turn, this is really the key for contentment, when you turn your life to God and you renew your minds through the word of God, the sacraments, prayer and fellowship, the ordinary ways that God ministers to us, you take up your cross daily and follow him. It's difficult to be anxious. Like my dad always said, dead men don't have many worries. When you die to yourself, it's hard to be worried or offended about anything. The attitude of your heart when it comes to wealth or family or possessions should be like Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. So when your car breaks or gets damaged, just remind yourself this is stuff and there's nothing outside of God's control. When your house is damaged or destroyed even, it can be replaced. When your bank account runs dry or you lose your job or your hours are what you didn't expect or something horrific happens at work, God is with you. Or maybe it's a serious and just a dreadfully painful occurrence. A loved one is sick or hurt or dies God is able to take care of you. You see, Job experienced all of these things, and much worse than you did. He suffered, and God was with him, and he took God at his word, that he would never leave him, that he would see his Redeemer again. And he restored, God restored Job after the trial was over. You see, there's not one ounce of your hardship that is wasted. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, your anxiety and your discouragement won't change the situation. But fixing your eyes on Christ will. Praying to God will. He helps you be content in all situations. The trial you're in or you have experienced may be difficult. And certainly you will have difficult or painful trials in the future. We all will. We need to focus on Christ. Okay, quickly the conclusion. We have an option. We have a choice. Idolatry or Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people to ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, Paul's saying here's the, the result. Here's the end result of you not focusing your life on Christ and on this teaching, this right doctrine about Christ. Not only will you not be content, but it's going to plunge you to ruin and to destruction. Sin is always destructive. It entraps you. Some of you might be entrapped in sin right now in a particular 
sin that just keeps showing its ugly face in your life and you don't know what to do. You have to focus your heart on Christ again and again. Never give up. Ask the Lord to help you. The best way to break any sin, including a love of money or possessions that Paul's addressing here, is to recognize, number one, there's a problem. And then to focus your gaze on Christ. To prayerfully and practically fight against the actual sin when you see it, but to focus your gaze on Christ. If money's the issue, as Paul mentions here, if you do love money, your heart is always going to money when you think about what, what you're thinking about in, in your free time. If it goes straight to your finances and your money and you're tempted to worry, then that's an idol. So fight. Start giving your money away. Start tithing. Do something with your money that the world or Satan would not expect. Trust in the Lord. There's never going to be an end of new cars or new houses or new clothes or new jewelry or whatever. More vacations, more free time, more leisure or pleasure. All of these things can be idols. But they only lead to more discontentment. Ultimately, it will bring you to destruction, as Paul said. It will plunge you to ruin and destruction. Many, he says, have wandered from the faith. Paul's calling out the final judgment of those who actually pursue the world, the flesh, and the devil rather than Jesus. Jesus did the same exact thing. He called those out who rejected him and their final judgment before a holy God being hell. So to summarize, contentment, you should know the truth, know your doctrine, and believe it from the heart. Recognize the folly of rejecting the truth. And when you see idols, also see Jesus and pursue Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything you need. And it's not just a word. It's not just a quip. It's not just a thing a pastor says. Everything you need starts with Jesus. No one can come to the Father except through Christ. So forget what lies behind and strain toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus today. This is your call. To stay content, focus on Christ. Focus on the Word every day in your life. Your prayer time every day. Fellowship. Sacraments when you have opportunity. Tonight we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. At the center of all, though, is Jesus. Run to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that in Jesus' name, you have given us everything we need for health, for contentment. Because of you and your your Holy Spirit, we can be different. We can live as those who are committed to our Father and our God. We pray that you would bring bring true contentment to each person in this room. Within the sound of my voice, everyone would embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, would recognize idolatry, would run from 
anything that is false that this world offers up to us, that we would hold tightly to your word, the soundness, the healthiness of your word, that it would bring life to our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.